Hey everyone, welcome to the B2B Power Hour podcast, where we release special interviews with marketing and sales leaders, as well as our live show, all in audio format. If you haven't already, make sure to follow Nick and I out on LinkedIn. Our profile links are in the description, or you can also just search for us or B2B Power Hour. Now on to this week's episode. And welcome to the B2B Power Hour with your host, Nicholas Thicket and... The other guy who shows up. <laughs> I'm Morgan Smith. Welcome. Good morning. And a happy Friday to you, Nick. I'm glad we didn't have any technical difficulties this week. No, no. We've never had technical difficulties like audio not working and Microsoft screwing up all my mic settings. Like that yeah. never happens. <laughs> no. I. It's always funny. I think the joke that I've made often is that we we sent we sent humans to the moon more than 50 years ago and we still can't get a microphone to always work <laughs> it's that part a, is with less tech than is in our pocket i know it's astounding that we still have so much audio visual <laughs> issues talk about it. yeah <laughs> um well good morning how is how's your week been it's been busy Mm -hmm. but it's funny every time we go and set these topics it's like they just naturally come up in conversation and would you like to introduce the topic of the day or uh, therapy session is now in session (laughs) that's great well this week i was uh super excited for this topic when when we decided on it basically that marketing is not magic and that whatever company you think is an overnight success has probably laid the groundwork for years to the point in which they can become an overnight success. And I'm really excited to uh, cover a lot of ground today with you about marketing especially and uh, brand marketing in particular about the long haul that it takes for companies to really become an overnight success even though you know that's 12, 24, 36 months in the making. And really dive into some of the particulars. And also, I think one thing I want to cover today with you is the role that sales leaders and sales plays in creating an overnight success, especially because marketing is not magic. You know, there's not some warlock casting a spell over here. We don't have any witchy brews that can turn companies into, um, you know, spectacular successes in a, in, in a moment or in a hot second. And, uh, I think we have a lot to cover. So where do you want to start, Nick? That's tough. You know what? I think we should go and talk about some of the misconceptions or at least some of the companies people assume are overnight successes to give some examples. Totally. Would you like to get us started? Sure. I think Airbnb is maybe a great example. Um, for I mean, they, it, they didn't toil in obscurity for a long time, but I remember... That, that Airbnb for me came really big in probably like 2012 or 13 was maybe when the brand itself was like, oh, there's this thing where you can go and stay in somebody else's place. And by the time like 2014 rolled around, it was big. It was like, why would you ever stay in a hotel? You can stay in this really cool I don't know, seaside shanty on the shore <laughs> or, a, or a cottage up in the mountains. You know, you don't need to stay in a hotel anymore. But Airbnb was started in the middle of the Great Recession in 08 or 09. And it was born, actually, I live in Denver. The, one of the original conception came out of here. 
And oh, basic, basically, Brian Chesky, who's a co-founder, was struggling to find a place during the DNC, which happened in 2008, because Barack Obama was so popular at the time. All of our hotels here sold out. And so basically stayed on a friend's air mattress. And lo and behold, this sort of idea was born. And that created a company in, that invested in its marketing and it invested in its brand for years before people ever heard about it. And now Airbnb is ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. It is, and it's been years and years and years of them refining their product, improving their systems, improving the buying experience. And that's like a direct-to-consumer example, of course. Um, but something that all of us use or have heard of at the very least and also spawned its own industry right now you have like vrbo and all of these other competitors in um renting out people's places when previously you basically only stayed in hotels when you traveled or motels depending on your budget well it seemed like it also spawned like even some of the rideshare programs it's a great example yeah the shared economy Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like out of 08 came a number of these companies that now we accept as ubiquitous, like Uber and Lyft, um, Airbnb. There's a whole list of uh, companies that received early seed stage Series A funding during that time that became this massive company. I think WeWork was even among them. Now, that's a great example of an overnight success sort of imploding on itself. (laughs) Uh, But another example of a company that invested heavily for a long time in this conception of a brand and also spawned a lot of competitors. I mean, the commercial real estate brokers and large investment funds now fund co-working spaces. Uh, and that was based on this model of, well, you don't need an office if you're small, but where do you work if not a coffee shop? Why don't you have an office? And each of those companies are overnight successes in the sense that their news coverage was nothing, 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 nothing. Oh my God, right? And it became part of our public consciousness. But I think that's everything. Like one of my favorite examples, the two are Amazon and Apple. And I I think we should start with Apple because it's a well-known brand, but I don't, I honestly don't think most people understand or know their origin story. Would you mind if we go and discuss Apple and like how, where it came to be, because go for I, it, you know, the 30 year overnight success. Yeah. That's an understatement, right? <laughs> how long, how long was Apple around before they, they I, I can't remember if it was 20 or 25 years before they really, and they almost went bankrupt. Yeah. Times. I mean, they, I would say they definitely made a splash in the seventies and eighties with like Apple one and two and the Macintosh that was like instant financial success. But in terms of it's like ubiquity as, um, in the iPhone and in the mobile era, I mean, the iPhone was 2007. Can you believe it's only been like 14 years that we've had smartphones on this planet, uh, in the way that we now do. That's just nuts to me. So we, they're everywhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the 90s, uh, Steve Jobs resigned, or in late 80s, Steve Jobs resigned and went on to Next that uh, and helped start Pixar during that time and a number of other ventures. And Apple, yeah, fell into financial troubles and then eventually rehired him until he passed away. 
And I think and that's great at Pixar. Yeah. Isn't like, that no, crazy? No, no big deal. Yeah, MBD. <laughs> some time off and like <laughs> multi-million dollar business in my spare time. Yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to leave the most famous, you know, user interface company of all time, Apple, with their Macintosh, and I'm going to just go casually start Pixar. Oh yeah, that's what we do, right? And change motion <laughs> graphics forever. <laughs> Oh, gosh. But that's a good, that's another good example of a company, Nick, that really had a period of time where they they were really well regarded. They were well known in the 80s with their early Apple stuff. And then it kind of in the 90s. And then iPod happened. I mean, I, I would say like the real resurgence of Apple was the iPod. Did you ever have an iPod? Yes. Okay. Not an iPhone, but an yeah, iPod. Yeah, an iPod. Yeah, the little scroll wheel that you can have. Oh, what a great product. But do you remember when you used to buy the MP3 players and they used to have like 30 megs? Yes. And you're like, yes, I get to have like a full CD on here now. You're like, Yay, I can put two albums on my little MP3 player. Gosh, what a different time. There's no such thing as streaming services then, right? But uh, iPod is even trying to go and download the proper music to go and put it on there. I think I think this is the really good point to consider, like Mm -hmm. Apple trying to go and create their IP, basically pigeonholed themselves and put themselves in this box in which they couldn't come out with their computers because Microsoft had more dominance and because it was used more in the business world and not like the creative world, they couldn't grow. They actually limited themselves and because they didn't play nice with other software especially microsoft they that was the end and then when they came into the ipods and -hmm. some of the other you know market leaders or category leading Mm -hmm. devices that they created they set precedent oh yes i think ipod iphone and ipad all set the precedent for the entire market i mean there's no there's no uh counterpart to the product what's interesting about our title today is there's a very famous ad with ipod early on right after it was launched and it was um a thousand songs in your pocket have you seen this billboard before it's um it's like a thousand songs in your pocket and it's a picture of the ipod with their early you know earbuds that you can fit in and of course it was an overnight success right (laughs) because Now you could put a thousand songs in your pocket and a super easy to use, cool interface. And I mean, it was revolutionary for the time. But obviously, Apple had invested so much in product design, in market research, in testing the interface, of course, all the production stuff that goes into it. And they also had the equity of a company that invented Macintosh, like brand equity of a company that had this history and legacy of creating great products once upon a time. And I think it's a good example of brands that are able to almost like resuscitate themselves. And then, of course, they just took the world by storm when iPhone was released and the iPad was released because those also created categories um, in the industry. And I remember, gosh, it was it was some sort of, maybe it was a Nokia, but there was some sort of like Windows phone early on. <laughs> this is pre-iPhone and you still needed a stylus to interact with it. It wasn't like a Palm Pilot or anything. And I, and I, I loved the, um, the visual components of that, but that wasn't made until Apple was a thing. So 
um, or until the iPhone was a thing, did the industry really take off with that creative vision? So anyways, I could talk about Apple products all day. <laughs> I have a special announcement. And then oh. after the announcement, we'll continue this because I want to talk about Sony. Oh, yes. How they hurt cabinet makers and put the, <laughs> the radio in your pocket. Oh, gosh. So as we announce this, which I'll flip back to our page, we have the only Travis L. Scott. Not Travis Scott, but Travis L. Scott. And here he is. Hey Good guys. morning. How Good are morning. you? Good. How you doing? Sorry, I'm late. Uh, technology issues. So apologize. No worries. For that. Welcome. We were just ranting about great product design. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. I have to use my um, middle initial now. Never thought I'd ever have to do that. But um, but yeah, certain certain other person. Uh, who's a lot more famous than me, decided to change his name from Jacques to my name, which blows me away. <laughs> now, the real question is, have you ever met a Travis M. Scott? No. Okay. So I feel like there's an opportunity to create like sort of an alphabetical list here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Of the different Travis Scotts. <laughs> Absolutely. So I was going to, we were just talking about overnight successes and how with everybody assuming marketing is magic that they just snap your fingers and like Apple became a thing and Amazon became a thing and uh, Morgan had started out with Airbnb. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there is no such thing as an overnight success uh, in anything. Uh, I mean, maybe YouTube, um, but that's fleeting. Um, TikTok, it's fleeting, you know, anything that's worth a, a, a crap, um, don't know what we're rated here um, <laughs> is uh, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, if you look at those businesses you just mentioned, um, I mean, Apple started what in the seventies, eighties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and um, I mean, I mean, they all, it takes time. It takes time to build a brand, build a promise, uh, make sure that promise is consistent. Um, as far as the marketers you see out on LinkedIn who are um, kind of thought leaders, they didn't happen overnight. Um, I mean, look how long Gary V's been doing it. Um, I mean, long it, time. It takes a long time, a long time. Um, you know, and and Dory Clark. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she is is releasing a new book called uh, The Long Game. Um, hmm. uh, yeah, next week actually, uh, next week sometime. And I've been following her work. I was part of her book launch team. Uh, and, and she talked about how, um, how far things have come from her first book, um, which I think she published in 2014 or something, um, to now, um, to this book, um, the evolution and, um, and, and just to follow her career, Seth Godin's career, you know, how they all started out. Like it does not happen overnight at all. So no, a book that I just picked up, but I haven't. I just started going through is the perennial seller by Ryan holiday. Mm. And the thing that I like about it and the thing that keeps sitting with me is what we always think about what's relevant right now, mm. but most people don't consider what will last a lifetime. What's relevant that will keep people talking in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And you know, look at the Beatles mm. and you know, now what everybody's calling classic classic, mm -hmm. whatever, 
it, you know, they did something that was so breathtaking or so emotionally connected to us that it'll stay relevant regardless of the times. This is an interesting question. Do you think brands can be timeless? Or do they constantly have to like renew that promise? And and, and the Beatles is a good example from like cuz they're not a <laughs> they're not a band anymore, right? They're two of the members have been or died or were assassinated and the, you know, it's just sort of this equity, the experience of of the Beatles once upon a time. But even like Rolex or Patek Philippe or any sort of like luxury brand, they sort of go for this timeless feel. But is that because the product itself is timeless or is do they have to like actively renew that promise again and again? Like can a brand be timeless? I, I think, yeah, I think I think it depends on. Yeah, I think a big factor with that is nostalgia. Um and that gets to the mm-hmm. heart of what makes it timeless, right? And does that timelessness ever fade? If the generations who have the nostalgia with that brand eventually pass on, does it start to fade as well? Um, you know, I look at Polaroid, uh, Atari, um, all things I have nostalgia with. I'm Gen, Gen X, so that's right in my wheelhouse of, of being a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I'm doing a, a a brand refresh for my company and and i was trying to go kind of old school nostalgia uh, and looked at those brands uh, because of what it the the feelings that they brought back you know so see i think part part of timelessness might be nostalgia to some degree that's interesting yeah i never thought about it that way my brain instantly went to a big enough pain Hmm. a lot of brands i don't see solving a big enough problem and you look at like Tesla and how they they want to save the world through electronic vehicles like that. They opened a big enough door. Where I don't know if it'll necessarily be timeless, but they gave themselves a long runway where a lot of brands, the door they open does not give them a very long runway. And it actually puts a very near expiry date. Mm-hmm. So they basically ramp up and they die. Not, not, I wouldn't compare it to like a pet rock. Like it's not quite that much of an expiry where, you know, it, it ramped up, they sold what, four or $5 million and that was the end of it. But I think that's the biggest problem is a lot of companies, when they think of their branding and they think of their taglines and they develop all this messaging is they're not addressing a big enough door to grow, which can be okay if they want to be small and nimble and put a limit on their growth and their like size, which I would say like some of the firms that we've looked at, Morgan, that mm-hmm. are, you know, under 50 people because they don't have politics to get in the way of them making a quick branding change or positioning change. Mm-hmm. And they also don't expect it to work in the next three months. <laughs> well, it's interesting what Travis brought up, too, is in some ways I feel and now I think it's the pressure is just more intense, but that we have platforms like TikTok that do create these sort of pressure chambers to chase the next trend. And it I, I think Marty Newmeyer posts occasionally, who's the big branding expert, he posts occasionally the the uh, collection of corporate logos. So it, it I mean it happens at big and it happens at small, but but there's you know three to five year periods where everyone went for the swoosh. And right now everyone's going for the very simple, like sans serif text. There's no complications, there's nothing fancy. It's it looks like 
you ripped off some Silicon Valley startup every time you create a new logo. And it's like simple, simple, simple. And that's the trend right now. But um, I feel, especially as you get smaller and smaller, the the pressure chamber, I think, even becomes more uh, severe because for smaller companies who are selling to other businesses are really attuned to the trends that are going on in the marketplace. Almost you have to be, I guess. I, we could debate that too. I'd be interested if like, do you have to understand the trends that are going on to sell well or to market well um, to other businesses? But they get too caught up in those existing trends and then they create something for the moment instead of thinking more fundamentally about their brand promise, their positioning for the long haul that would guarantee an overnight success. It's all it's like almost a paradox where you answered it, your question already. Oh, did I? Oh gosh. <laughs> but that's a lot of companies look at that trend hmm. as something they're gonna ride forever. It's that perennial and not realizing it's acute, it's short. Mm-hmm. And so they're using it as a something to build momentum and then leaving it. Like LinkedIn right now is the opportunity for B2B marketers and B2B salespeople to connect with their target audience. That is where people are going for information. There's other channels, but it will not last forever. Look at Facebook. Look Great at Twitter. Hmm. YouTube. I Somebody was telling me right now, YouTube is still the cap, you know, still the king of video. I disagree. <laughs> I think that that time has passed. Hmm. What do you think, Travis? Well, who do you think is the, the king of video? Where are people going for video? Yeah, I a lot of companies that I talk to are going on to TikTok, LinkedIn, and believe it or not, Twitter, hmm. YouTube. But I think that the bigger question is, is long form or short form? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what are people actually consuming and why? Mm. And I would say long form. I think that YouTube is still winning but I don't think most people have the attention span. So what they're doing is they're going on to live shows. They're going on to podcasts, going into Slack channels, LinkedIn, and like the different people they follow. And they're doing the research in like microbursts over longer time frames. So like if me and you want to go and buy new mics, you know, traditionally you sit down for an hour, figure out where you want to go, and then you go buy it. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that the awareness cycle where people are actually making up their mind and like, so they don't have that buyer's remorse is taking months, weeks or months that they're doing this research, depending on how critical it is to their life and what it says about them. And then they're reaching out. And I think that's why it's changing that the long form video isn't as relevant because people, once they be part of, become part of that brand, they move to the long term, the long form, because now they're ready to dive in because the trust is there. Do you think consideration stages are lengthening um, to That's some degree? Question. And atten- attention spans are shortening and consideration time yes. is lengthening, probably as a result switched. of attention spans being short. They can't process enough stuff in the amount of time they need to to make a quick decision. Absolutely. Uh, there's too much competition. Like we were talking about last week with why salespeople shouldn't be selling anything under 50K is that there's too much internal competition where they're competing with themselves. Like I, you walk into a sport check now and you buy, want to buy a shoe. If you don't haven't done your research coming in, you're not going to make a decision there unless somebody gives you guidance because there's just too much choice that it's not relevant to distinguish between one or the other. But uh, I think another the confusion is part of it. 
And I think another part is we've changed the uh, the flow of information and we've switched it from being on seller's time to being on buyer's time. And this is why like the experience journey and buyer enablement and even demand gen have become such important critical pieces that most B2B companies aren't really considering. And this is the opportunity for these overnight successes to pop up in 18, you know, a year, half a year, two years. Hey, Morgan, yeah. you look at like demand, state of demand gen live and what, you know, Chris is saying. And I agree, like demand gen for the most part is where you're going to win. And then buyer enablement because sales is changing their role in transactions. And if I have to make a prediction of where we're going to be in the future, sales is going to be the emotional side and they're going to be the fulfillment and almost more post-transaction than pre-transaction. And marketing is going to be empowered to do the work that they should be able to do in the first place and get off the defensive. To, to riff on that, Travis, like what do you see or do you see marketing's role uh, expanding and changing as this paradoxical awareness cycle lengthens, even though people's attention cycle sort of <laughs> gets quicker and quicker? Like how can... How do you see marketers combating that? Or what are the things that um, talented B2B leaders need to be aware of uh, as they roll out new campaigns in this fast-paced world? Yeah, yeah. Fast-paced, but not, right? Right. <laughs> uh, I think it really just comes down to understanding people and the people you serve and and not getting so stuck in what worked in the past because it's not always going to work. And um, you know, I think when, once you understand that, then you can focus on creating the, the content, your audience, your, your prospects need to make those decisions and how, and getting it to them, how they want to receive it, right. Where they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just content to marketing, um, mm -hmm. kind of one-on-one, -on -one, right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some businesses can get stuck on, um, thinking about things too transactionally. Um, and maybe that worked in the past with quicker decisions, but, um, you know, things are becoming more complex. Um, I mean, just look at marketing technology alone, sales technology alone. I mean, the, the number of, I mean, it's just, it's, it is overwhelming. And, and how can a company with a marketing team of one or five really do the deep dive they need to, to make a decision on a CRM on, on some kind of marketing automation platform, There's so many options. I was talking with somebody about that just the other day. She's a marketing lead for a growing B2B data company, basically. And she's a marketing team of one <laughs> and hiring a, a number two. And the lengthy discussion was, what do you hire for? Because there's CRM technology that, you know, they have a couple sales reps for the company. And so obviously there's CRM stuff. There's customer lifecycle management. There's a cadence of content you can serve your prospects and your existing. And then there's everything else like PPC, branding, positioning, everything else that we have all this technology to enable. And it really can be overwhelming, um, especially for smaller teams. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, it's kind of where I'm taking my business to a certain degree. I mean, I think there's a need for, uh, for help with that. You know, people need that guidance, someone who, is in that stuff every day, sees different use cases. And, and you can go to a G2 and see kind of what, where things land on the grid, but mm. you know, um, 
those things might not work for your business. You know, uh, it's not a, you know, all encompassing, oh, this is the best, uh, you know, HubSpot's the best overall marketing platform out there. I think it is, but I'm biased since I'm a HubSpot partner, but <laughs> it's not going to work for everybody. You know, it's, hmm. and there might be something that might be more niche that isn't catching your attention, but it's for you. Right. So yeah. I think, I think there's a need. And what need help with that. Yeah. What comes to mind too, especially with our topic is that overnight successes generally, I don't know if this is like a hundred percent rule, but I do see that the companies who, um, become overnight successes, even in their, in their niche, have a commitment to those systems and systems in a broad sense, not like the technology itself, but that there is a drive from leadership to say, look, we chose the CRM for a reason. And hopefully that decision-making process was like a good one. And we've set up this content strategy or this brand strategy, and here's our marketing plan for the next quarter and for the next three years. And here's how we're going to achieve it and just stick with it. And the hope, what it sounds like then as a result is that a lot of the work discerning what kinds of marketing is going to work for that company in their niche for their audience, how that content needs to be served and delivered is actually the most of the time. Because nowadays we have all this technology that makes the execution and delivery pretty seamless. It's not like you don't need humans involved. I think talented copywriters and strategists at every level are always a good thing. Um, But the time to like launching an ad now from where it was even maybe five years ago and especially 10 years ago, it's just so much quicker and so much easier. And now it just requires that that careful foresight and strategic planning um, from leadership and from both the marketing and sales teams to make sure that those things are happening together. I was about to just say marketing team, Nick, and I was like, oh, can't forget the sales guys. <laughs> oh, I'd love to get your take again. on yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and thinking about this stuff, it, I, I almost think there's a, a big vacuum when it comes to marketing operations. I, I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of you know frontline uh, tacticians and strategists to some degree, and they get these tools and these platforms, and they get a bunch of them, and they plug them all so together, many. but they don't really have a plan uh, mm-hmm. for how they're going to pl- plug them together, how they're going to leverage each with the other, yeah, um, and they just start to use it, and they don't adopt it because they never really understood it fully or there's no one back there in more of an operations role saying, here's how we're going to use it. These are the things we're going to focus on rolling it out, really operationalizing the implementation of those things. And I think that's a big problem too. Yeah. That's more, even on the sales side. Now I've seen Mm -hmm. more revenue operations where you're linking everything together and people have these incredible sales stacks and yet aren't performing. Mm-hmm. And when you look at why they're not performing, it's because they're not doing the basics. They assume mm-hmm. that technology would do the work for yeah. them. They didn't realize that technology was there to optimize or enhance what they were already doing. And exactly. people are doing it backwards. And I would actually love to go and change the conversation and kind of lead it into product market fit. Because I think this is a huge point that people don't consider. They have it backwards. A lot of the time they build a product and then seek the market. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these companies and Airbnb is a great example with them living in the Airbnbs <laughs> and like actually doing the product marketing. And then you look at uh, Amazon and how they've changed things from the books. You look at Apple and how what they did is they iterated, 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 pivot. And then all of a sudden their messaging and their brand gets it right. 
and all of a sudden they explode because the product market fit is exactly where it needs to be and it just takes off. But I don't think enough mm-hmm. people consider that when I talk about the overnight success is that, you know, they glamorize entrepreneurship and the, the whole like hustle culture and they just ignore the fact that this hard work is the maker or breaker of your entire business and it also sets the trajectory of how big you can go is how tight that product market fit really is. I also think, or in that, if I don't know if I want to add an asterisk, but maybe it's a corollary, <laughs> um, which is every once in a while, you will find a marketing genius. And I think Steve Jobs was a marketing genius. And that marketing genius has such an ingrained ability to see and understand the market as it is that they don't need to do product market research. The problem is that everybody thinks that they're a marketing genius. <laughs> and so it's, in my opinion, I think it's a much better discipline to do what Nick is saying in which you are iterating, in which you are testing. Uh, you're finding an audience and you're building something for that audience, not building something and finding an audience for what you built instead of trying to come up in the back room of a really cool idea, right? And and again, like one out of every 10,000, one out of every 100,000 marketers is going to be that marketing genius. But that means that the other 99,000 are not. And it requires that discipline to really test in the market. And by no means, I still think Apple did testing, of course. And they did iterate and they did improve their product based on user feedback, et cetera, et cetera. But at that sort of crucial moment of, well, I want to create a smartphone that you don't need a stylus for. You should be able to use your fingers and it should look very particularly like this because this is how I think people will use it. That's Steve Jobs. Like that's such a rare skill set. And I think it's it's important to humble ourselves and realize that we don't know enough about the world in order to roll out a product and have it fit perfectly. And I think even to weave these threads together with what Travis brought up, I think too often we hyper accelerate what the what we need in six months today because the technology is so cheap. Like at the end of the day, you can probably launch a startup using only spreadsheets and you have a CRM spreadsheet and you have a, a budget spreadsheet and you got a doc with your marketing plan and then another doc with all of your content just in 30 pages in a row. Like you could do that. And and that brings you back to those fundamentals. But because the technology is so cheap, why not do it now? And then everything gets lost. Um, and there's not the marriage of the discipline and testing in the market and the systems, the internal operations to support that. Um, and in the end, your brand just maybe flops. Um, and the way you know your brand flops is because you don't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you make a little money, but not enough, right? <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I think part part of, you know, Nicholas, you said that people have it backwards. You know, I think there's just a problem with that term product market fit. It's leading with the product, then finding the market fit, right? I think it's a problem product fit is what is more what it should be, right? Hmm. Find a problem, solve the problem, then scale the problem because more people have it, right? Instead of creating a product and trying to find a problem, that never, never works. It'd be interesting if they even said just market problem fit mm-hmm. and they made people like even for a prospectus go and show that they know their market well enough and they understand the problem well enough and the problem itself is big enough 
long before they go and look at the product or service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oftentimes I see that marketing teams sometimes <laughs> marketing teams inherit this problem <laughs> because you know obviously if you're if you have a founder, let's say a technical founder or somebody who's has technical expertise in the in the field and I don't know, you're selling some sort of software as a service product and it's built for lawyers and so the leadership founding team of the company was a lawyer and an engineer, like of course the marketing team is likely going to inherit the problem that the product is great and yet there's no one, it doesn't really solve a top of mind problem. And it's a hard conversation to have at, at an early stage to say, hey, you built a great product and we can get people excited to it to the point in which they like your name and your brand, but they'll never buy from you. And I mm-hmm. think uh, that discipline of the problem product fit or the problem market fit is such a better starting point because that allows whatever founding team and whatever marketing team or marketing leaders you eventually hire on to help promote your product, it makes the whole thing easier. Because now you're saying, oh, we're solving this specific problem for you. Like Seth Godin um, often says, what is it? Like, uh, here, I built this (laughs) for you. I built this for you. Like, I built this thing knowing you and do you want to pay me for it? Do you want to purchase it from me? And that's a very different conversation than saying, hey, I built this. It's really cool. It's very flashy. It's shiny. And it's could great to you. use. And it <laughs> could it could be for you, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I didn't build it for you. For you and you and you yeah. and you, which means it's for no one. Yeah, well, seriously. I'll even like how Seth Godin even says with content marketing, how I would say that he is the person to go to for content marketing, yet you even t- look at how he just show up every day because you never know what's going to be the one that takes off. Mm-hmm. And he's like, out of the hundred posts that I post, three of them do well, you know, however many flop and the rest are okay. Mm-hmm. And so we can't wait for the perfect product. We can't wait for the perfect post. And I think as sales and marketers that we get put in this position of it needs to be perfect from the start. And I think that is the biggest problem because there's too much pressure from senior management to allow us to play and not realizing that playing like the whole like molding it as you go, understanding the market, it's actually part of the process. You can't get one without the other. Like the information I get in a sales meeting, I should be telling you guys. The information (laughs) you guys are getting from your marketing campaigns, you should be telling us what questions are you addressing? What market are you addressing? Do you know how many times I go into a sales meeting and I'm talking about like personas or like just general information or like top customers so that I can go and retarget for myself, not even for ads. And you're like, well, I'm not really sure. Right. I'm pretty sure then if you're not really sure why you're having an issue with your sales. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think communication between sales and marketing teams is badly broken. In a lot of instances. So if you had to, this is a question for you, Travis. I don't know if this is on the spot. So (laughs) take this whatever direction you want. But if you had to, if you had the power to deconstruct the entire sales and marketing and revenue engine of a company and rebuild it, would you rebuild it as it is done right now? Or would you take it in a different direction and like how how would you build some of those 
internal operations and systems that could really get these companies on the right track. It doesn't have to be 100% either, but at least a direction. It's a great question. Um, And I think it it depends on what's the what's the business trying to achieve? Hmm. Is it a, a couple of founders who just want to build it up and sell it? In that case, it's really all about them. It's not about the product or the customers. And so all you need are salespeople who just care about money and they'll get you the money and you're out. Right. Um, but if you truly care about the product and the customers, um, I would burn it to the ground and start from scratch with a focus on, on that, on, on customer retention. First and foremost, I would get rid of commissions for salespeople, um, and, and get rid of the silos. Um, because I think the commission structure is what creates the silos between sales and marketing. Um, and a lot of the tension too, um, that, that happens. And so I would get rid of that. Um, I would go down to the psychology of what, what motivates people, you know, like Dan Pink's book drive. Um, it's not money that ultimately drives people. It is for a short period of time, but I would burn it to the ground and focus on the long term building something that will last well beyond you. Um, something that puts the customer first and commission does not put the customer first in any scenario whatsoever. Um, so yeah, I would, I would start with the customer focus. Customer service team might be the heroes of the company, uh, not sales. Um, and combine sales and marketing into maybe more of a cohesive team instead of, you know, sales and marketing. It's just, business development and it encompasses both sales and marketing. That's super interesting. Nick, what do you think? I have a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I I agree that commission is an issue, but just saying it's commission and just saying it's sales is missing half the equation. What is marketing being judged on and why is it not aligning with sales? And why is it not about the customer and why is it about sales and marketing? Hmm. I, I like that's kind of the biggest thing when I go and do a con- consultation and I'm figuring out where the sales team is struggling and like rep performance is an issue and engagement. Like they're disengaged with the company, their sales performance is lacking. And then you're looking at how marketing and sales are set up and customer service. They're all disconnected. They're all working on different metrics and none of the metrics actually align with customer success. And I think this this is why when I was saying earlier that demand gen, um, buyer enablement, all these things are such a big opportunity for B2B right now because they put customer first and it puts sellers in the backseat in which we are prescribers and we are emotional connectors and we're leading. And I honestly think it's marketing's job to sell. Because marketing respects trust and earning trust in the time that it takes to get there. But a lot of quarterly strategies, a lot of tactics don't respect trust. They expect it should be given just because it was demanded. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. metrics, I would say. I was just about to launch into that because I think that there's a lot of incentives to hit the wrong sorts of metrics in the current system. And I think what Travis is pointing out about commissions, especially is part of that problem. And like marketing is 
usually guilty of only generating MQLs. <laughs> so here's a name and an email of somebody who interacted with our site once, but we're not going to tell you that because at least it's an MQL and at least we hit that metric. So good luck sales team trying to sell to that person. And uh, I really, I, I know you shake your head because it's true, right? I mean, I've seen that too many times. Hey, Morgan but, told me to go and call you that uh, you were looking for more information. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't uh, fill out any form, and uh, oh, uh, this is uncomfortable. But hey, Thanks, at least marketing. The, yeah, hey, at least marketing hit its you know its MQL quota. At least we hit our metrics. I I, I think what really resonated and to sort of reaffirm and extend is that brand loyalty is the long term engine. Like yes. there is no way your brand stays in business if you don't create loyalty. And that loyalty comes from that customer first attitude in which you are building trust on the front end and the back end. I think Marketing, it's a, sales and customer service. Where's my soapbox, right? Like there's <laughs> that every company I interact with almost always over invests in acquiring new customers and under invests in keeping them. And that's part of the skewed incentives or the result of the skewed incentives. But I also think it's part of a leadership mentality and Travis was, I think you were getting sort of in that direction in which the leaders of the company have a specific goal and they want to exit. And so they're going to try and juice the numbers as much as possible. And yeah, at the end of the day, you can exit and, and, and do that. But if you really are trying to build a brand for the long haul, like the amount of money and time that you should be investing in retaining your customers is, should be equal or more than the amount of time and money you're spending in acquiring them. Mostly because even if you if you can increase the number of customers that buy from you again, let's say you're not on a subscription service, you know, software or something, you sell sort of one-off products and you make a sale every time. If you can get just 10% of your existing customer base to buy from you again because they trust you and now you're rolling out something new for them, hey, I built this for you kind of thing. I mean, that's a huge revenue gain. And you literally did no work that time aside from all of your upfront stuff on the acquisition side. And that is a real flywheel for, for business growth and definitely underinvested in um, between, be, because like, where does that sit? Is that marketing's job? Is that sales job? Is that the service team? Like there's not really... A, a center in which that normally sits or the overarching you know leadership thinks oh the marketing team is helping getting our existing customers to buy from us again right uh, in some organizations maybe we can hope it's not even considered until it's a problem mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's say more about that i want <laughs> <laughs> most people i talk to and i mean i'm like 99.9% .9 of people want more leads well, there's actually two things. They either want more people to talk to because they think they can close everything. Or there's the other people that have this abundance of leads, but they're just not sure how to navigate the sale and close it. I do not have anybody that comes to me and says, hey, uh, we have these people, but we don't have a marketing budget to go and bring new people in or like adapt to how people want to buy. So we're thinking of like just focusing on the people we have and increasing retention. Could you help us with that? Never happens. Mm -hmm. I would be blown away if it did because that would be a company that cares. 
And if I had to say where it would fall under, everyone. But this is the problem is everything's disconnected. Marketing's working on one metric. Sales is working on another metric. Customer service is working on another metric. They're also, they also have different promises. Mm-hmm. Their brand promises don't align. And that's where this disconnect comes. And that's why they don't align. Like me and Morgan were talking about having like our in sync infinity symbol because sales and marketing should work hand in hand, both pre-sale and post-sale. Yeah. But I haven't seen it. And I'm hoping as the new marketing software comes in or sales software, now even like HubSpot, they have the service wing too how that's going to link. So it's not just these large companies with their ERPs that are actually considering people post-transaction and not just because they need numbers, but mm. they realize that that's how you build that community and how you really take that trust, value, and advantage and really push that advantage by having scale. Hmm. You know, and I think the communication piece between sales, marketing, service is so critical. Um, one, to just understand your ideal customer and, and who will benefit the most from you. Because who's going to talk to that customer after the sale's done? Service mm-hmm. team. And what if they knew what products were coming down the line and, and what the benefits were, not to sell and upsell and cross-sell and any of that bullshit, but to d- know and listen, to listen to the customers. And when the customers bring something up, they could pull it out of their back pocket and say, oh, by the way, this could be an option and more consultative, right? I mean, have you ever mm-hmm. seen sales service people who have quotas and commission? I mean, Wells Fargo comes to mind back in the day. I used to bank with them. I'd go in and see a teller and they're trying to cross sell me. I'm like, no, like, just give me the money that I came <laughs> in here to request or whatever I'm doing. I don't need the teller trying to upsell me like it just was a horrible experience and you could just tell that they didn't like doing it they were uncomfortable but they had quotas and it just was horrible um and so i think if you start to incentivize again with the commission thing and quotas and the quarterly obsession that companies have because of their shareholders not their customers um like it just turns into an awful experience whereas you could turn it into a fantastic experience and sell more through your customer service team, not your sales team. Um, and then what happens when that customer is so delighted, they go tell someone else that the sales team or marketing team didn't even have to do a thing to get them in, right? Uh, I think that's that dark funnel that yeah. you can't measure, right? No. If Blockbuster would have taken that approach, they would have bought Netflix and we'd be watching mm-hmm. Blockbuster. Yeah. They would have cared yeah. more about customer experience and late fees. Yeah. Yeah. That nickel and dime transactional stuff man people get hooked on it like airlines i think it's going to catch up to airlines eventually mm-hmm. charging well, for everything the yeah. fact that google makes more money than all of the airlines together has says something <laughs> you got a big search engine behind google but yes that's <laughs> big big advertising model behind i i think what's interesting for me hearing this is the the term you brought up, Travis, a dark funnel, basically the immeasurable pieces of your business that still generate revenue. Brand marketing, certainly it, by definition, is sort of immeasurable. Like you don't have direct ROI off of some of your brand stuff. Like who knows how many people bought from Squarespace because they ran a Super Bowl ad. 
Uh, but similarly, service, I feel, is an underappreciated part of the revenue uh, engine for a company. I think it's appreciated in the sense of like, oh, we need to take care of our customers. And leadership gets like, yes, good service can um, help deliver our product better. But it is rarely ever discussed as, no, this is like a revenue center. And I, I definitely view service as a revenue center for a company. Uh, and I think some technology companies, I think Basecamp might be a good example of a technology company whose customer service team is integral to some of their revenue. And like they do and are able to bubble up concerns from the customers and pass it along to their product team. Right. And say, here's a really big issue our customers are currently experiencing. The best way to keep them um, purchasing our product is if you solve this problem. Uh, but most of the time, we sideline some of that work to like a what's the big company? Zendesk, like a Zendesk knowledge base that, you know, you try and find your. I just went through this with GoDaddy, so it's sort of a personal thing uh, for a client of mine where you go through their help center and you can't find the issue and then they make it really – it's four clicks later until you can actually find a phone number to call the right person or a chat bot to find, you know, talk to the right person. And that's a quick way to lose customers. Uh, but to your point, I think if you're not investing in that to the point of today's topic, you are going to burn through the whole market. In however long, or you know, eighty percent of the market in however long, and you're going to have you know two percent market share, and nobody's going to like you because they bought your product once and then they didn't solve any of your problems. And also, hey, by the way, your customer service team are a bunch of assholes. Like that's not <laughs> that's not a great way to stay in business, let alone become an overnight success. You've given me a great question that I would love to ask the two of you. Oh yes, Travis first. <laughs> Deal. We can definitely do that. So everybody I talk to tells me that brand is intangible. I disagree. I think it's both tangible and intangible. It just depends on where you're looking on the balance sheets. But how do you track branding? It's the question I want to ask you to, and I'll, I'll give you my, my sales perspective of it, but I'm curious from marketers, how should a brand be tracking brand growth? Oh, man, I, I think that kind of comes back to the whole attribution thing, right? We're so hung up on attribution that we can't get out of our own way and, and realize that some things just can't be measured that easily. Um, I mean, I think it's, it could be lift, look, you know, a longer period of time, I think, is is what you're going to have to look at with with brand growth, um, not quarterly. Um, if you're looking at quarterly results, you're going to be disappointed. But I think year over year, multiple years over years, uh, and just kind of see and and custom measure customer sentiment. Um, do surveys. Um, ask people. Have your sales team asking people um, um, how they feel about the brand. Um, uh, you know, I think it's, it's really hard to measure. I think there are indications. I think you'll see things over time that you can kind of attribute to br brand growth. Uh, I think the number of referrals you get is a huge, I mean, if you can, have, can if you can find a way to track word of mouth referrals, um, in some way, that's going to be a really good indication of brand growth. 
or people talking about you in a positive way and referring other people. Um, that's probably the best way to, to measure it in the shorter term. Great answer. Morgan, you're up, buddy. Gosh, uh, what a great question, Nick. Even as Travis was talking, I was like, how am I going to answer this? <laughs> I, I think uh, what's already been stated is a great direction. And I agree. I think your base timeline is at least a year. Like there's no way that you can understand your brand's equity if a similar term here in a marketplace in under a year, it just doesn't make sense. And I think there's sort of pro, uh, like proxy measures, things that don't tell you anything specifically about a brand, but because your brand is working, this proxy measure is working. And obviously I think short-term results are a fine proxy measure in the sense like you are making money or you are generating sales, that's an indication that whatever you're offering does deliver value, you hope. I, But in the long run, I think retention is a huge piece uh, to whether your brand is working. I think referrals, as was previously stated, is a huge piece to understand whether your brand is working. And I also, I don't put too much weight into this, but if I had to offer something on top of what's already been mentioned, I think some sort of earned media, however that can be attributed or tracked, is part of understanding your brand's impact. So earned media does not have to be an article written in Forbes about you. At its basic level, it could literally just be somebody else in your industry is talking about how great your product is. And that's difficult to track. That's you know Chris Walker's dark social, dark funnel sort of pieces where you have your... Uh, content, your products or whatever else you're selling, show up in a Slack community of the right kind of people or show up in um, a live stream <laughs> of two other people who are talking, oh yeah, I saw this company, you know, it's really cool. Like by definition, immeasurable, but if you are automatically immeasurable, but if you're a brand that is engaging in your market there's a chance that at least somebody on your marketing team or your sales team or somewhere in your revenue ops, they're hopefully participating in those communities. And it's it's good to at least have sort of a sense, like a, like a sense of what's going on in the communities to see is, is there chatter about our brand? And if there's no chatter, that doesn't mean that you have a bad brand. That just means you have more more time, you know, you have a longer runway to go until people start talking about you. Uh, but definitely from more of a revenue side, I think retention and referrals are are huge and and a piece, a core element of understanding how well your brand is performing. Yeah, I, I, I think retention is, is huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, retention, a, a great brand, great customer service will insulate you from the competition. I mean, you both have probably experienced it where you are so pleased with a brand, with a service, a product that all of a sudden one of their competitors runs this ridiculous discounted campaign, right? Mm -hmm. And it could save you thousands of dollars and make a big impact on the bottom line. But you're just like, no, sorry. I don't even want to hear what you're saying. Don't totally care. not, not looking and it's not about the money. It's about I'm taken care of and I just see problems with a switch, right? Like it's going to make my life more difficult. I'm good. Like just go away. I don't care about the savings. I'm good. 
good well, example. I think just to riff on that, and I know we're close on time, Nick, is I think that if you are trying to compete by price, you're probably already losing on your brand. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you don't have a strong brand, you can charge, you can't charge a premium. And so if you're really scared of increasing your prices by 10%, this is at least a rule of thumb. If you feel like you can't increase your prices by even 10%, that's a brand problem. That means that you're competing somehow in the marketplace in which people are price comparison or price shopping, sort by price, all the rest of it. And they're not actually taking in how good is this company? What's their story? How can they make a difference in my company? And if those things are are in handle, you can increase your price by 30% and most people aren't going to really care because you're as good as you say you are. Yeah, I think that's trust, right? You yeah. instilled enough trust and belief in what you do that people will be okay and, and they'll understand that sometimes you have to raise your... I think... Mm-hmm. I think that companies, if they instead focused on loyalty if their only initiative was loyalty it would change the way brands are looked at because too many brands care about people that aren't paying they Mm -hmm. run their entire campaigns on companies on people that aren't paying if brands focus on the people that were paying and the best customers it would change the way people interacted with their brand and viewed brands. It would also change the way that they sell the brand because Mm. my favorite thing is when I walk into a company and they know who I am, whether it's me personally or it's my company because brand recognition is there. And and now I've started with trust. Mm. And so if more companies just focused on loyalty, are people talking about them that use their product? I wouldn't even go net promoter score. I would just say, what's what's your retention rate? And where are your referrals coming from? I think you guys hit the two metrics on the head. And if more companies just focused on that, that would be the game changer that needs to happen. Going back to the Morgan's question about like what has to happen with marketing sales and customer service. And I think that if we took those two metrics and aligned it with marketing sales and customer service, Imagine that would change companies act mm. in the world. Be amazing. I think the bottom line to all of this is time frame. Loyalty is a long-term thing, right? But companies, a lot of companies right now just are focusing on quarterly, short-term. And you're never going to get loyalty when that's your focus. So I think at the bottom line is you have to change, radically change your timeline horizon with your business. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If more companies would stop focusing on their monthly and quarterly goals and had something that would satisfy the short term so they didn't have those money crunches and could actually invest in the medium to long term, that would also free them up to do good work. Mm -hmm. And they could stop jeopardizing and sabotaging the long term for right now. Totally. Well, uh, Travis, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, Travis is the CEO of Rainier Digital. I know you can connect with him out on LinkedIn. It's been a joy to have you on this morning with Nick and I on this B2B Power Hour. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground this morning from overnight success tropes, the myths of big and small brands, and how how to basically make it happen. What systems, what uh, attention, what metrics, and 
how to align your marketing, sales, and service functions together to create loyalty, to create referrals, and to, of course, most importantly in my book, uh, to reinforce your brand uh, for the long haul. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the B2B Power Hour podcast. Make sure to subscribe to catch all of our upcoming episodes, and we'll see you next time.